Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. Positive emotions are awesome, right? Positive emotions make life worth living, but you don't want to have only positive emotions. You want to have some negative emotions mixed in there because negative emotions are functional. And one of our most functional negative emotions is regret. So you don't want to extinguish it. You want to be able to harness it. And we haven't been shown how to do that. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 197 of Passion Struck, recently ranked as one of the top 50 most inspirational podcasts in the world in 2022. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. And if you would like to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs, both on Spotify, as well as the Passion Struck website. These are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And in case you missed my episodes from last week, they featured Harvard professor Max Bazerman and Haas Business School professor Don Moore and we discussed their brand new book, Decision Leadership, how you can help others make better choices. I also had on Dr. Jesse Wisdom, who's the co-founder of Humu, and we discussed how she is using behavior science to solve some of the biggest people issues in companies around the world. And lastly, my solo episode was on cognitive biases and six steps that you can take to remove them from your life. I also wanted to say thank you so much for your ratings and reviews. They go such a long way to helping us promote the popularity of the show and increase our community as well. Now, let's talk about today's episode. Have you ever wondered why regret is largely about opportunity and missed opportunities? Of course, some people have more opportunities than others. Does that affect the amount of regret that they feel? Do people with more opportunities have more regrets? Should we use our regret more wisely or have less of it? How do we take advantage of regret without getting trapped in rumination? And why, instead of running away from negative emotions, we should engage with them and learn to use them. Our guest, Daniel Pink, answers all those questions and many more. Daniel Pink is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive, To Sell is Human, and When. His books have sold millions of copies and translated into 42 languages, as well as winning multiple awards. Dan partners with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Adam Grant to curate the Next Big Idea book club. They donate all their proceeds to child literacy programs. And today we discuss his new book, which also made the New York Times bestselling list, The Power of Regrets. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so thrilled to welcome Daniel Pink to the Passion Struck podcast. Welcome, Dan. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about your incredible new book, The Power of Regret, which I'm going to show here 
and on YouTube, we'll make an even bigger splash about it. But before we dive into that, I wanted to discuss something I'm really passionate about, and I know you are as well, and that's the next big idea book club that you curate with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, who I had on the show as well, and Adam Grant. And I wanted to ask, what is your selection criteria and how does a book find its way to you guys? Selection criteria is just big ideas, well-presented that can make a difference in people's lives. And so that's both a simple standard, but also one that many, 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 many works don't meet. The way that uh, we hear a lot from publishers, there's a team of people at the Next Big Idea Club who receive all kinds of inquiries. They're out looking at catalogs. They're out looking at reviews. They're out pounding the pavement to see what ideas and what, what books are coming out there. And so we start with like a massive trove of books, and then it gets whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled. There's a preference at least I'll state my preference. My preference is not to is, is to go with people who are authors who are perhaps less well known, who could probably there's so many books that come out each year, hundreds, thousands. I want to give a little extra boost to people who might need it rather than established folks who don't need the extra boost. I love some of the titles that I've seen on there, and you're definitely doing great work. Some of the titles I've seen are definitely people who maybe it's their first book or they're not a well-known author. So that's great. I'd like to get the audience a chance to get to know you better. And so I understand earlier in your career, you were a speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. And I was hoping you could enlighten us a bit on what that experience was like <laughs> and perhaps maybe the, your favorite speech that you ever wrote for him. Interesting. Okay. So two very different questions. I don't know if I had a favorite speech. I think one of the ones I liked the most was a speech that we did at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he did the commencement address at the U.S. Naval Academy. This must have been 1997, I think it was. And I don't know if you can see here, John, over here on my mantle, you can see right up there, there's a hat. You can see that that hat that's sort of over my, over this shoulder up like Forgive me, I, I'm, I'm disoriented about which way I need to point. It's a midshipman cap, yeah. yes. There you go. Right, exactly. At the, the Naval Academy graduation, as some of your listeners might know, the marker of moving from being in the academy to being an officer is to throw up your hat upon graduation, and then people will rush onto the field to grab a hat. And I was one of those crazy people who rushed onto the field to grab a hat, and I've had that hat in my office since 1997. It turns out to belong to, it's unusual, it's a woman's hat, so there are more men than women at the U.S. Naval Academy. Also, inside of it is a sticker that shows that it's actually from someone who was a Marine. So there are more people in the Navy than the Marines at the Naval Academy, many more. And it's actually a hat that belonged to a former Naval Academy student named Amy McGrath, who went on to become one of the first female fighter pilots. I think maybe the first, one of the first Marine fighter pilots, uh, and also ran for office in Kentucky uh, a few times. Yeah, I actually know Amy. I graduated from the Naval Academy. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, cool. All yep, right, so yep. what year did you graduate? Somehow, I don't know why I was not informed. I was a class of 93 and uh, Senator John McCain did our commencement yeah. speech. Here's a little known tidbit about me. President Bill Clinton actually came to the Naval Academy. And for whatever reason, I was on the honor board at that point, And they asked me if I would do the tour. I had a very interesting hour or so oh, with the president. So that was a great experience. 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. N Naval Academy is a fascinating place, and I and the reason I meant I singled that one out was not to pander to you, although believe me, I'm willing to pander, but it was because uh, I was able to do some interesting research ahead of time, where I went up with uh, one of my colleagues who was a Naval Academy grad. No, he actually was not. He was not a Naval Academy grad. He was an officer, but he didn't go to the Naval Academy. He was a Naval officer who was on the National Security Staff. We went up and we got a tour of the Naval Academy. I heard a lot about the history. I actually read as preparation that, that McCain speech in 93, where some of which was about all the crazy stuff that he did when he was at the Naval Academy and how he wasn't that great of a student, and how he's sort of like a screw up, but somehow the overall ethos of the Naval Academy, of which his family had a long legacy, somehow seeped into his bones and shaped the rest of his life. So it was a fascinating place. Well, I have to tell you, you never know how it's going to end up. My two second class that were my direct supervisors are both now two-star admirals. And one of them, oh, wow. I would have told you, from the moment I met him, was destined to be an admiral. He just had that air about him. Yeah. And the other gentleman I played rugby with for a few years, and he would have been one of the least likely, I would have told you, <laughs> to have gone, mostly uh -huh. because he was such a fun, hearty guy. Yeah. Most of us just thought he would get out. And what's even more interesting is one of them is a SEAL, and one of them leads the EOD community. So both of them special wow. forces leaders. Wow. So interesting tidbit there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is really interesting, I think, to go back when we're young. You were between 18 and 22, probably, when you were at the academy. And to see how often our projections of what people will do are accurate and how often they're wildly inaccurate. There are people who I knew when I was younger who I thought they're going to be machines. They're going to be so incredibly accomplished. And they haven't been. And there are other people who are like, what? How did that guy become a billionaire? How did that guy or that woman become the CEO of a company? It's kind of a fascinating thing about life. It sure is. And I think that's a great way to view it. That and your high school graduates as well. Yeah. Well, one last tidbit I found out doing some research about you is you like this acronym. And I was wondering if you could tell the audience why it's significant to you. Uh, you mean ha who? Yeah. Wow. You have really scoured the archives for that. That is an acronym that much to the chagrin of my children, I used throughout their childhood. It was originally designed because we did a fair amount of traveling because as a family. And we travel with little kids, it's pain. So what I was trying to do was coach my kids into becoming better travelers. And my method for doing that was an acronym, HAHU, which stands for Hustle, Anticipate, Heads Up. So when you travel, you have to hustle, all right? We're going to move quickly. We're going to hustle from place to place, especially when we're in airports. Anticipate. You got to think ahead and figure out what I got this is my kids who live in a house had spent very little time in elevators. And they always seem surprised when an elevator reached the ground floor and the doors opened. And they just waited. It's like, no, you got to anticipate that when the door opens, you got to move out of there. And then, and then heads up is just being aware of your surroundings. They hated it. I persisted with it because I thought there was a broader life lesson there. So, um, so I try to live my life by hustling, anticipating, and being heads up. I think it's really good. Here's the thing. I'm playing the long game here, all right, with that. So even though my kids sort of rolled their eyes and now pretty much fundamentally ignore me on this, at some point in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, they're going to come to me and say, Dad, you were right. <laughs> And I'm telling my own kids, ha-ho. And that will be my vindication as a parent and as a human being. Well, what will be interesting is when they have kids, do they implement it as well? That would be- They better. 
<laughs> or I'm going to cut them out of my will. No, that's. <laughs> well, I found another interesting fact as I was studying up on you, and that is when you wrote The Power of Regret, it yeah, wasn't no. the original book you were supposed to write. And you that's ended up go, going to your editor and telling them that you wanted to change the topic. How did that yes. go? And what led to you deciding on this interesting topic to cover? We'll be right back to my interview with Daniel Pink. To live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow down the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add inner age 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash passionstruck. That's insidetracker.com forward slash passionstruck. Please consider supporting those who support this show and make it free for our listeners. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to my interview with Daniel Pink. I mean, how did it go is pretty clear since I was able to write the book. My editor is a fantastic human being, a very good editor, very smart guy, a lovely person too. And so he, he was willing to hear me out, was eventually persuaded. What got me there? was actually sort of a moment over three years ago now, three and a half, almost three and a half years ago, where I was at my daughter's college graduation. And I started thinking about my own regrets, especially about college, things that I wish I had done in college or wish I hadn't done in college. It was really kind of sticking in my head. It was really occupying a lot of mental real estate. I knew that nobody wanted to talk about it, but wanted to talk about their regrets. But then when I very sheepishly mentioned it to a few people, I discovered that everybody wanted to talk about it and that I got this incredibly robust response. And that said, that, that made me think the fact that I couldn't get this idea out of my head, it was an important sign that I was sort of wondering like, huh, what do I do with these regrets? And am I the only person who has these regrets? And are the regrets that I have different from other people's regrets? And then I started doing a little bit of research or about a month's worth of research just to see what the basic lay of the land was in psychology. But then it ended up being in other fields too, like cognitive science and developmental psychology and in um, neuroscience. I felt like this was a book that, that I, at some level, this is a book I wanted to read. So I had to write it. Well, I love that backdrop. And one thing I find really interesting when I read your books and I read Susan's, you both do a tremendous amount of research. And as I was asking her about bittersweet, she basically said the same thing. It was just something that kept coming back to her is that people yeah. really wanted to talk about emotions and melancholy and, and those types of things. But yeah. before we deep dive into the book, I did want to ask about this research. Can you explain the extent of the research that you initially did and then some of the additional initiatives that you took upon yourself to create, which I thought made the findings even more important for us to to listen to, to here on the podcast today. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Let's go back to one of your, your initial question about the next big idea club. How do you know 
a book is worth its time? How do you decide whether or not a book is worth your time or whether an idea is worth considering carefully? So you hear the idea, but that's not enough. I think you have to respond to that idea with the question, how do you know? Okay, You're saying that the world is flat. You're saying that the moon is made of cheese. You're saying that genes are the fundamental source of heredity. All right. How do you know? All right. And so what I'm saying in this book is we've gotten regret wrong. We've profoundly misunderstood it, that regret is ubiquitous, that it makes us human, and that if we treat it right, it can make us better. So appropriately, you want to know, okay, how do you know? I love that question. I think it's really important. I think it's a question we all should ask. So number one, there is 50 plus years of research on this topic in the social sciences, in the biological sciences too. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of research in social psychology about this. There is a, a really, uh, some very interesting research in developmental psychology, which is the, the, the psychology, how do people acquire cognition? How do they acquire emotions? Uh, how do their minds and brains develop? Uh, there's research because it goes to the brain. There's research in neuroscience. There is research in cognitive science. So a number of different fields have studied this emotion. And in fact, actually, the initial people who studied the emotion were in some kind of economists and game theorists. So a, a lot of the initial research and regret began during the Cold War, where you make a wrong move in the Cold War, and you're really going to regret it because you might have blown up the planet. That's one component of it. Now, what I also wanted to do, because I saw some holes in the research, was I did my two pieces of my own research. One of them was what I call the American Regret Project. And that is was simply a very large public opinion survey. Uh, it is the largest public opinion survey of the U.S. population, of, of U.S. attitudes about regret ever conducted. We did a massive sample of 4,489 Americans so that we were able to replicate what the United States looked like demographically, both in terms of race, gender identity, education level, income level, geography, and so forth. And so I asked people a bunch of questions about what they regretted. I had them slot their regrets into certain categories. I asked them a whole array of other questions too about even things about introversion and extroversion, about belief in God, about their sense of free will, um, other, you know, other kinds of things, looking to see if there were demographic differences in propensity for regret and what people regretted. But wait, there's more, because I also did something called the World Regret Survey, which was a giant collection tool. Now, I did that in order to sort of broaden it beyond the United States, but also to get some qualitative research and, and, some, and some material for storytelling. And that ended up being bigger than I expected. So it's still available to your listeners, worldregretsurvey.com. We now have a database of over 21,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And I was able to draw some insights from that as well. So those are the sort of three legs on which this research stool stands. Yeah. And I would just like to tell the audience that throughout your book, you bring up many of those regrets in it as examples that you use to highlight each chapter. So I thought that was a really nice addition. Yeah, you get to hear a lot of voices from people all over the world in multiple languages who are offering up their regrets. It's a pretty remarkable collection. Your listeners can go to worldregretsurvey.com. We have an interactive map, so you can go on the map and click on a U.S. state or a Canadian province and see the most recent regrets that have come in from those places. You can go to countries where we've had, I think, I don't remember the number, where we have at least five regrets and you can click on Chile and find out what are the most recent regrets from Chile or click on Switzerland or, or click on Senegal and look at the regrets from those parts of the world. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things 
and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think a great way to open up this discussion about the book is in it, you give the story of Edith Piaf. I think it does a great job of setting up the rest of what we're going to talk about. Can you tell the listeners about that story and why you decided to use it? Edith Piaf has a song that she, for which she is world-renowned. I mean, she became one of the most famous singers in the world because of this song, and, and her legacy exists today. And it's a song that embodies a certain philosophy. The song is in French, Je ne regrette rien. Je ne regrette rien. I regret nothing. And so it's a song about how she doesn't have any regrets. And this became an anthem in the 1960s. It's still used today, today, in the Super Bowl. There are ads with this song playing in the background. Of course, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there because she died full of regret. She died at a preposterously young age. She had addiction problems of both drugs and alcohol. One of her lovers died. She was she saddled her second husband with a huge number of debts. She abandoned a child. She had huge numbers of regrets. And in fact, on her deathbed, she didn't say, I don't regret anything. She said, every damn thing in this life you have to pay for. So she died with lots of regrets. And so what I was using that story, that song, to show that we have this prevailing philosophy, this ethos, this credo that says, I don't have any regrets. I'm never negative. I'm always positive. I always look forward, never look backward. And that is scientifically flawed and a dangerous recipe for living. Well, I liked in the book how you gave countless examples of people who put that tattoo on themselves and then many regret it later on, which is pretty right. interesting. Right. I mean, the point there was to show you how much this philosophy has taken hold. I mean, you've got a French song from the 1960s that's being used in Super Bowl ads. That's pretty good. Like, that's pretty sticky. you got people who believe in a philosophy so deeply that they don't just put a bumper sticker on their car or a yard sign in their lawn, but they enshrine that philosophy, ink, on their bodies. That's a pretty strong commitment. And what I was trying to do is show how much this no regrets philosophy has taken hold, but also, again, going back to the point earlier, using science to say, wait a second, let's stop and think about this. This is not 
accurate. What we know, as I said before, is that everybody has regrets. Regrets are one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's ubiquitous in the human experience. Everybody has regrets. And that if we treat our regrets properly, not ignoring them like Edith Piaf, not wallowing them, but actually thinking about them, confronting them, processing them, they can be actually a powerful engine for transformation and progress. Well, I agree. I can tell you from my own life, I look back sometimes and one of the things um, I have liked to have done in the past is I do something called a reverse bucket list where Mm. I look back upon my life, upon the things that I've accomplished, and I almost do something that you bring up in the book, which is kind of do the reverse of your resume. And I look at where were the successes, but I try to look at both in my career and in my life, where are moments where looking back when I've made the same decision, and if not, what can I have learned from it? So I think that's a great thing for us to really ponder. Why do you think our culture has such a hard time dealing with this concept? Yeah. That's a good question. I think it's a few things. Number one is that we no one ever teaches us how to deal with negative emotions, unpleasant emotions. So we don't know what to do. It's very easy when we're getting signals that we don't want to hear to put our fingers in our ears and try to bat them away. We've also been in some level sold a bill of goods that we should be positive all the time, which is absolutely not true. Here's the thing. It's like it's, it's too much of a good thing. Positive emotions are awesome, right? positive emotions make life worth living, but you don't want to have only positive emotions. You want to have some negative emotions mixed in there because negative emotions are functional. And one of our most functional negative emotions is regret. So you don't want to extinguish it. You want to be able to harness it. We haven't been shown how to do that. It's intuitively sensible, right? It makes sense in our gut to say, oh, you should be positive. Um, But what we haven't done is given people a way to deal with the negative. And again, there's a middle ground. We don't want to ignore our regrets. We don't want to wall on our regrets. We want to think about our regrets. We want to do what you're doing. We want to use them as data, as information, as signals, as material we can use to improve our lives. And so that third way between ignoring and wallowing is where there's incredible growth and progress. Well, one of the things I think the listeners are really going to be interested in is when I was reading the book. You covered this section, and from your research, you initially got a list of things that on the surface, people regret the most. Yeah. And then as you did a more diverse sample, those findings changed. Can you explain what you found at first, and then when you look deeper, how it changed? I'm glad that you asked that question. It goes to like the research and the process by which one comes to these conclusions. And so it's easy to bypass that. And I, but I don't like bypassing it. I like talking about it. So here's what we know. So when scholars had looked at this question, which I was curious about, what do people regret? Surprisingly, they didn't explore that question in any depth until rather recently, in, until this century. Uh, there was some research in the 70s, 80s, 80s and 90s asking people what they regretted. And the consensus, the overwhelming consensus was that people had more education regrets than any other domain. So we think about the domain of life, career regrets, education regrets, romance regrets, fi- uh, family regrets, health regrets, whatever. Education always came out on top in these studies. And then someone, again, <laughs> This is, this is the way science works. Someone said, wait a second. All these studies, the participants were university students or university staff, and every single one of them was done in an education institution. Huh. No wonder education was 
the top regret. If we had done it in hospitals with doctors and nurses and patients, maybe health would have been the biggest. So then these two researchers did a very good overall sample of the U.S. population using, again, forgive me for getting in the methodological weeds here, but did a what's called random digit dialing, which was a waning a little bit now. But it's basically a way to get a representative sample in a poll of the U.S. population. They did that and they discovered that people regret a lot of stuff that the regrets were all over the place. They were in all different categories. Some people had career regrets. Some people did have education regrets. Some people had romance regrets. Some people had finance regrets. All right, it's all over the place. So it was kind of uh, um, unsatisfying. So I said, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a better version of this. I'm going to do the biggest public opinion survey ever conducted on this topic. And we did it with working with Qualtrics, a big data analytics uh, survey company. We did a really, really, really good public opinion. I mean, I'm very proud of what we did. We did an, a first-rate public opinion survey of American attitudes of regret, where we sampled people, we had them listed regret, and then we had them put them into the categories, career, education, et cetera, et cetera. And I discovered, uh, once I crunched the numbers, that people regret a lot of stuff. It was all over the place, right? So that's kind of frustrating because you know, I spent this time and treasure on this big survey looking for demographic differences, of which there were not many, and trying to crack the code of what people regretted and didn't do that, qualitative piece of research came in. So let me indulge me with this explanation here. So what I discovered is when you slot, when you have people slot them into these existing categories, they are all over the place. But those existing categories are less revealing than something else going on beneath the surface. And that is what you get from the qualitative stuff. That's what you get from reading people's regrets over and over and over again. I read the first 15,000 of these of these regrets. And let me be specific and concrete here. The best example of it is this. So I've got people who regret not a lot of regrets about not traveling. OK, uh, I had a chance to study abroad when I was in college, but I didn't do it. I had a chance to go on this adventure with my friends, but I didn't do it. All right. So people who regret not traveling, let's say. Let's say not studying abroad, a pretty specific one. So that's obviously an education regret. Then you have people who, and I got a lots of these, people who regret not asking somebody out on a date. X years ago, there was a person who I re was really interested in romantically. I wanted to ask them out on a date, but I was too chicken, and, and I've regretted it ever since. I got a lot of those. I got a lot of those from around the world. So that's a romance regret, right? So then I've got also a, a huge number from around the world are basically, hey, I stayed in this lackluster job. I wanted to start a business. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the guts to go out and do it. I wanted to start a business. I wanted to launch my new an enterprise, but I, I, I didn't do it and I didn't have the guts. Okay, so that's a career regret. But in my view, and I think it's pretty clear, those three regrets are all the same. They're a regret about being at a juncture and having a choice of either playing it safe or taking a chance, playing it safe and taking a chance. And what I found from these 21,000 regrets is that in most cases, people regret not taking the chance. Not in all cases, but in most cases, people regret not taking the chance, not going on that trip, not speaking up, not asking out that person, not starting that business. And that's what I call a boldness regret. And what I found is that around the world, when you just go one layer beneath those domains of career, education, health, finance, whatever, those were the regrets that were persistent. Four of them, including boldness regrets. Yeah, well, that's where I was going to go next. So you have foundation regrets, boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. And you just talked about boldness. Can you just do a short overview 
a foundation, moral, and connection? Foundation regrets are, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets that people have about regrets about, uh, about spending too much and saving too little. A lot of regrets about eating poorly and not exercising. A lot, more regrets than I expected about not working hard enough in school, not being conscientious enough in school or university. So small decisions early that accumulate to bad consequences later. That's a foundation regret. And what they do is they unsettle, they cause instability in your life, whether it's financial or health or whatever. It's about sort of bad decisions that accumulate and give your foundation, make your foundation wobbly. Boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. Moral regrets, very interesting category. Uh, if only I'd done the right thing. So you're at a juncture, you can do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. Almost all of us, not all, I mean, really, almost all of us regret it. Not everybody, not every single person, but a lot of us have these moral regrets, uh, regrets about bullying, regrets about cheating on our spouse, regrets about being dishonest, regrets about shoplifting as a kid, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and then finally, number four are, are connection regrets, which are only I've reached out. And these are about the relationships in our lives, not only romantic relationships, but the whole, all of the relationships in our lives, when they come apart and they usually come apart in slow ways, we want to reach out, but we feel awkward. We want to reach out, but we think the other side's not going to care. So we don't reach out and the drift widens and widens and widens. And sometimes it's too late. So connection regrets are, if only I'd reached out. I think what's interesting and a little bit of a surprise is how universal these regrets are. So that if I were to show you this database and block out where the regrets are coming from, I don't think you'd be able to distinguish a Polish regret from a Missouri regret, from a Guatemalan regret, from a, a regret from British Columbia. Well, since you brought up that worldview, maybe you could tell the story of Bruce and Sandra, who came from two different countries as a way to highlight this. Well, this is a good example of a boldness regret. This is about a guy who filled out the World Regret Survey, and then I ended up interviewing him afterwards. So we, so in the World Regret Survey, it was, all, it was anonymous. So all I wanted to know was people's gender. I wanted to know where they're from, and I wanted to know their age. And then obviously, I wanted to know their regret. If they wanted to, they could leave their email address to be contacted for a follow-up interview. So of the tens of thousands of people who submitted, I was able to interview about 100 and I can't remember the full exact number, 170 of them or so. And one of them was this lovely man named Bruce, a very, very nice guy who lives in the state of Washington. And he had a story where he had just graduated from university in the States. He was working in Europe and he was on a train and he was riding that train, traveling around Europe. And then one night, a young woman sat down next to him. The train stopped in France. A young woman sat down next to him. Obviously, he didn't know her. She, she was Belgian. She was working in France um, as an au pair. They start talking. They start laughing. They start holding hands. It's like something out of a movie. It's the greatest day of Bruce's life. He's just, it's like this kind of stuff doesn't happen. And so he's sort of in this kind of dream world with this woman. It's a very touching story. But the, the, the train gets to a stop in Belgium. And the woman says, this is my stop. I have to get off. And Bruce says, I'll go with you. And, and she says, no, 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 no. My father would kill me. You can't do that. And he doesn't know what to do. Again, this is 40 years ago. So there's no mobile phones. There's no Wi-Fi or anything like that. So he writes his mother's mailing address on a piece of paper. He hands it to her. Um, they kiss. She gets off the train. And then 40 years later, he said, I always wish I'd stepped off that train. And so this is a, in some ways, a really poignant and powerful uh, boldness regret. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling that story. I did want to ask one more question before we leave these, because it yeah. just caught my eye. What are the five regretted sins on the topic of moral regrets? I'm glad you're getting into these issues here. We have a sense 
around the world. So let's talk, we're talking about universality. We have a sense around the world and within the United States of what constitutes boldness. It's bolder to start a business than it is to stick with a job. It's bolder to ask somebody out than to stay silent. Okay, so we don't have much of a disagreement about that. But what does it mean to be moral? It's a little trickier because we don't have a full, we have a consensus about some aspects of that, but not entirely. And there's a great book uh, called The Righteous Mind by John Haidt that really lays this out. He's done incredible work on what's called moral foundations theory that suggests that morality isn't one thing, it's multiple things. We do have a pretty good consensus about that you know we shouldn't hurt people, we shouldn't harm people, uh, we should care for people in general, right? And we shouldn't cheat people. But on other kinds of things, there is there is less of a consensus. So if you look at something like I'll give you an example. Let's go back to the let's go back to the military. I got people in this sample who say I regret that I didn't serve in the military, and it wasn't because they wanted the adventure. It was because they said I had a duty to my country, and I didn't fulfill it, and I feel bad about that. Now, there are some people in America who will say, that's not a moral regret. You didn't have a duty. And to which I say, shut up. I mean, it's not for you to say, you know, if you if somebody who feels that 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 sense of duty. Now, again, we don't so we don't have a consensus on that. We do have a consensus that shoplifting is a bad thing. Cheating on your spouse is a bad thing. Punching somebody in the face unnecessarily is a bad thing. Right. Believe me, because I've been out talking about this. There is not a consensus that someone who didn't serve in the military and regrets it has a moral regret. But to that, I don't care. To that person, that's a moral regret because there's a sense of duty. I didn't have a large enough sample in Asian countries and Confucian cultures, but there are some things about a few regrets about like not honoring your parents. So things about authority, so duty, authority, sanctity, those kinds of things. There's not a, there's not a full, there's not a full consensus on that. Um, so there are very few, there are relatively few Americans who would say, oh, I didn't honor my parents. I didn't, I didn't respect my parents' authority. That's my big regret in life. It's just not something that in, you see very much in America. You see it more in Asian countries. And then there are things like sanctity of life and things like that. It's interesting because the moral regrets were the smallest category, but they were in some ways the most diverse uh, because we don't have a full consensus of what it means to be moral. And that's okay. That's okay. What we need to do, and this, again, I encourage everybody to read this book, Righteous Mind, is that what we need to recognize is, is that people have different, we should abide by our own moral codes, but recognize that some people have slightly different moral codes than we do, and we should be respectful and, and honor those. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, another topic that has come up recently for me personally a lot is a study that you mentioned in the book called the Grant Study. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a psychologist about it just the other day. But if someone doesn't know what it is, can you tell them? But more importantly, how did the World Regret Survey align or disalign with its findings? The biggest category of regrets are connection regrets out of those four. And I think what's important to understand about these regrets is that when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. So as we were talking about before... When people have foundation regrets, what they're saying is that they value stability and it's missing from their lives. And so I think with connection regrets, the, the reverse image that regret offers, when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. People are telling you implicitly, sometimes explicitly, that they value love, not only romantic love, but just the full notion of what love is, the love we have for other people. And I think that boldness regrets are about learning and growth. And I think moral regrets are about goodness. And so these regrets give us a sense of what people really want out of life. But again, the biggest category were connection regrets, which are about love. Now, to the Grant Study. The Grant Study is a famous study started at Harvard University 
Harvard College, uh, I think it was the 1930s, where they studied uh, young men, all white men at Harvard, and they then followed them through their lives. They measured everything. They, took, they gave them personality tests. They gave them IQ tests. They gave them physical tests. They were trying to figure out, crack the code of like what contributed to human flourishing. Why did some people lead miserable lives? Why did some people lead happy lives? Um, and it, you know, it's like, so are people who made money or happier than, than people who haven't made money? No. Are people who've achieved professional, high professional achievement, are they happier than people who haven't achieved anything? No. So they're looking at, are, are people in great physical health happier than people in terrible physical health? No. What they found was that the single biggest, perhaps by, by far, factor in whether people flourished throughout their lives were, did they have close relationships with people who they cared about and who cared about them? The directors of this study, he was a director for, I think, 40 years, said, oh, man, we were, we've, been, we've been studying this for almost a century now, but I can summarize the findings in five words. He says, happiness is love, full stop. And I think that there is some affinity between the prevalence of these connection regrets and this thing that the Grant study found, which is that happiness is love, full stop. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a solo episode last week on why loneliness is killing us. And oh, yeah. some of the statistics are just alarming. AARP found that 45% of U.S. adults are lonely. Yeah. Another study that looked at it for over a 20-year period found that 33% of all people in 113 countries are lonely. And I kind of answered it by saying that the biggest reason people are lonely is because we are kind of built to give love and receive love. And if you're not doing that, it's going to cause that phenomenon. I think people, whether it's social media or what have you, are getting further and further isolated and not having that dialogue that really makes us whole. And as you might recall from the next Big Idea Club, one of the books we picked about three years ago was Together, uh, which is a book by, he was at the time a former Surgeon General. He's now back in the job as Surgeon General of Vivek Murthy about the epidemic of loneliness and how loneliness in America is a public health issue. Well, I've been reading a book. One of the nice things about having a podcast like this is you often get books before they're published. Yeah, so this yeah. one is a book called Blind Spot by John Clifton, CEO of Gallup. And in it, he cites that their research shows that unhappiness has been on a rise globally for a decade. From your research and the things that you got back from the regret survey, can you provide any insight that you might have found to why this is occurring? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I think it's complex. It might go to some of these things about regret. I mean, if people are feeling lonely and isolated, that can contribute, obviously, to unhappiness. If people are feeling precarious about their lives, that they feel like they can't get ahead in the economy, that is obviously, that's dangerous. Case in Deaton called deaths of, contributes to deaths of despair. I mean, we had the data came out two days ago from the day that you and I are talking, showing that life expectancy in the United States has decreased, which is an alarming phenomenon. That's not supposed to happen in a, in a country as advanced as ours. So I think that some of it has to do with in, uh, economic instability. I think some of it has to do with frayed social relations. I think that some of it has to do with uh, people feeling isolated and lonely. I think some of it has to do with people feeling so polarized, even from their neighbors. It's a complex stew of things, but the stew does not taste very good. 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I read a book earlier in the year by Katie Milkman called How You Change. And in there- That's a great book. That's another Next Big Idea Club book. Yeah, she cites, I think it's 40% of premature deaths are because of intentional choices people make and lifestyle choices that they make that could be reversed. So- Absolutely. It, it's a big one. Well, we've talked now a lot about the different types of regrets. I want to take this in a little bit different direction and now talk about what are the benefits of regret? And you outline three of them in the book. Yeah, there are a bunch of benefits. Among the benefits are, again, if we treat it properly, if we confront our regrets, don't ignore them, don't wallow in them. There's evidence showing they can help us become better negotiators. There's evidence showing that it can help us become better strategists. There's evidence showing that it can help us become clearer thinkers, avoid cognitive biases. There's a lot of evidence showing it can help us become better problem solvers. There's evidence showing that it can help us find greater meaning in life. So there are an array of benefits to be found when we actually, at some level, lean into our regrets. We don't, again, I keep coming back to this, we don't ignore them. We don't ruminate on them. We simply examine them. We think about them. When we do that, there's some very, very good evidence that as fuel for moving forward. Yes. And then the follow-on question of that, we've laid this out, we've laid out the benefits, but what are some of the options that the audience could take for responding to regrets that they might have? Yeah. I think one of the first things is how you frame the regret in yourself. So a lot of times when we make a mistake, when a lot of times when we screw up or we have a regret, our self-talk, the way we talk to ourselves is harsh. It's very harsh. It's sometimes brutal. And there's a whole line of research in what's called self-compassion that says, don't do that. Instead, Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. We have a hard time doing this. When other people screw up, we're often kind, not always, but we're often kind. We often don't excoriate them the way we excoriate ourselves. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Don't treat yourself better than anybody else, but don't treat yourself worse. There's no evidence that's effective. Recognize that your mistakes are part of the human condition and also recognize that any mistake you make is a moment in your life, just a tiny moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. And when we do that, that can offer people something akin to psychological safety to begin making sense of these regrets. Uh, another important step is, I think, to write about or talk about your regrets. Disclosure is a form of unburdening, but even writing about it privately or talking about it privately with a friend converts this negative, abstract emotion into concrete words which are less menacing. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Talk about it or write about it to convert this blobby, abstract, negative feeling into concrete words. And then finally, you have to draw a lesson from it. Right, you have to think about. It. You have to say, "What did I learn from this?" This, and the military does this. The idea here is like, let's examine it and draw a lesson from it. The way to draw a lesson from it is to take a step back, ask yourself, "If my best friend came to me with this regret, what lesson would she learn from this?" There's a great technique from Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, who said that when he was faced with a tough decision, he would always ask himself, "If I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do?" And so, getting some distance. And so, when we treat ourselves better treat ourselves with self-compassion, recognize that we're like everybody else. When we talk about our regret and write about our regret to defang it, and then when we explicitly, intentionally draw a lesson from it, then it's very useful. It's very useful to us. It's not this debilitating emotion. It's a propulsive emotion. It's not something that sort of puts a break on our progress. It's something that actually helps us glide into even greater progress. Yes. If the listeners aren't familiar with your book, Drive, it's all about motivation. And in this book, you talk about 
The Theory of Motivation by Columbia University psychologist Tori Higgins. And I loved this comparison because he said, we have the actual self, the ideal self, and the ought self. Can you discuss that through the lens of regret? Our actual self is a person we see in the mirror. Our ought self is a person we think we should be. The ideal self is a person we think we could be. And he's, his argument is that motivation is formed in that kind of synapse, that space between the actual and the ideal or between the actual and the ought. I think that's part of what is propelling regret. What makes people feel bad going back to the, these, if you think about something like a bonus regret, it's like, wait a second, why didn't I start a business? Like I maybe could have done something big. I could have done something interesting. I could have contributed to the world. That's my ideal self. And I've fallen short of that. That makes us feel bad. But I think again, in that gap between ideal and actual, that gap between ought and actual, that makes us feel bad. But Higgins is arguing that it can be a form of motivation. And, and I think he's right in the sense that if we have a, a systematic way to process that negative feeling, we can enlist it and redirect it for good rather than to bring us down. Yeah, and I think a follow-on to that is if we know what people regret the most, how can we reverse the images to reveal what they value the most? Yes, I mean, that's what I was saying before. We do know what people regret the most. They regret not taking chances. So what does that tell us? That tells us that people want to like use the vanishingly short amount of time they, they're alive to learn and grow and live a decent life. People regret not building a stable foundation. Why? Because they value stability. This is another reason why I think having this fresh look at regret is helpful. It's helpful at the individual level in the sense that it normalizes regret because it's fundamentally normal. If we treat it properly, we can do better. But if we understand regret more broadly, we understand what makes life worth living. And so, as you were saying before, it becomes another version at some level of the grant study saying, what do people, what actually makes a good life? When we think about our regrets, we are at some level thinking about what we want out of life, what makes life worth living. Not to get morbid here, but I think that it is important. We acknowledge our mortality. I think a lot of these regrets are about mortality. That is, people will have moments in their life when they reckon with the fact that they're not going to be on the planet forever, that they're going to die. They want to be able to do the right thing. They want to be able to build a stable foundation for their family and their team. They want to be able to learn and grow and do something before it's all over. And they want to, as the grant study told us, they want to lead lives enriched by love and close relationships. Yeah, and I I thought for the audience, uh, we both could give a turn on as you were writing this and you thought about your own life, what were some of the biggest regrets that came up for you? I have a lot of regrets. I have regrets about, I don't think I've been bold enough in a lot of respects. I think that's a big part of it. I have some moral regrets that I don't really want to talk about publicly, but that have helped me become reckoning with, have helped me become a better person. I have a lot of regrets about kindness, especially earlier in my life. And so for instance, I have a lot of regrets in the database about bullying. I have regrets that are, they're not bullying, but they're akin to that in the sense that I was in many situations where people were not being treated right. They weren't being treated fairly. They were being excluded. They, and um, when I was younger, much younger, and I knew it was wrong. I saw it. I knew it was wrong. I didn't do anything. And that has bugged me for a very long time. And so the question once again becomes, what do I do with that? So if I have something, this in case, an indecision and inaction that has bothered me for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that's a pretty strong signal, right? Like, I don't even remember what I had for lunch today, right? So I made decisions today that I don't remember, but here are decisions or indecisions from 30 years ago that stick with me and make me feel bad. That's a strong signal, okay? So you got to reckon with that. So what do you do with that? What that tells me, at least, is that, wait a second, you regret not being kind. 
I guess you must value kindness more than you might think. If you had said to me, what qualities do you admire? I don't know if kindness would have been at the top of the list. But if I look at my own inadequacies from earlier in my life, inadequacies of kindness really bug me. So maybe I do value kindness. So regret clarifies what we value, but it also instructs us on how to do better. I don't want to feel that way. And I've changed my behavior in that regard. So I've tried to, when I see people not being treated right, to say something, to step in, to step up, because I want to try to avoid that feeling in the future. And I'll, I'll give my own turn. I think one of the biggest ones for me is I've unfortunately had a lot of trauma in my life, whether it's been combat or otherwise. And yeah. I tried to internalize it instead of dealing with it. And I regret not dealing with it earlier because the repercussions of not doing it magnified the long-term repercussions so much more. And so for me, what I'm trying to do, and in many ways I, I do it on this podcast and by reaching out to people is to try to educate them on why you need to do it um, immediately and allow yourself to feel things so that you can heal and process it and get over it. And I, the other one that's been really bothering me just recently is I dropped my youngest daughter off to college and I got divorced a number of years ago. And as I look back upon her and her brother, I regret not having that half the time that I would have had them and had much more experiences with them. So just two two things I wanted to point yeah, out. And those are two great, I mean, I don't, I say great regrets, but they're two very powerful regrets. I mean, one, the first one, which is a version of a foundation regret. We have a lot of people whose regret is that they didn't deal with sort of the difficulties in their life earlier. That is, it's, it's essentially a foundation regret through inaction. I knew I had a problem or I knew I had to deal with this, but I just kind of whistled past the graveyard and finally caught up with me. That's a big one. And then also just the connection regrets. Now, here's the thing though. Here's the thing that's like, you're a young guy. You got plenty of time left. You can look at those. So the question, again, once again, it's like, okay, could you ignore those? No, that's a really bad idea. Bad idea. All right. Do you wallow in those? That's a bad idea too. What do you do? You do exactly what you're doing is you think about them. And you say, what is this telling me what I value? It's telling me what I value actually. And the first one, I think what it's telling is that you value not only stability, but you value sort of the intellectual honesty of dealing with things that really happen. And you value compassion for others and for yourself. The other one is like, you're the grant study guy. Like you value love. What gives your life meaning are in wholeness are the relationships you have with other people, including your kids. And so both of those give you, give us, because I'm the same. I mean, I mean, we're, both of those things give all of us, you and me, but everybody listening, guidance on how to live the remainder of their lives. Okay. I'm going to end on this question because you bring it up at the beginning of the book and you end the book with it. Why does regret make us human? Regret make us better. It makes us human because it's a ubiquitous emotion. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. I can't tell you, everybody has regret. Our brains are pre-programmed for regret. It's part of being human. And the reason it's part of being human is that if we treat it properly, it can help us. And so what I want to do is just basically, once again, is just normalize regret because it's so normal and also give people the tools to process it effectively. And I think when we do that, and if we do that, not only at an individual level, we do that at the level of families, we do that at the level of organizations and teams, we do it even at the level of countries and nations, then I think we become better. I think we become better people. I think we accomplish more, we contribute more, and we build a more just society. Okay. The last question for you is you're everywhere, but if a listener wanted to know more <laughs> about you, what's a great way that they could do it or connect with you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. There's um, free newsletter, 
other free resources, videos, information about the books, all kinds of stuff. Unicorns, free Kool-Aid, <laughs> um, pony rides, everything. And I would also say you do great interviews that I've heard on the Big Idea Club. Um, oh, I yeah. think that's, yeah, I love the one you did with Islet Fishback. I used it yeah, as yeah, yeah. research. I also interviewed Katie Milkman about that book that you mentioned, How to Change. I really like both of those books. They're two very good scientists too, both of them. They are. They're great. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an incredible honor. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Daniel Pink and wanted to thank him for the honor of being a guest on the show. Links to all things Dan will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you buy any of the books from our featured guest on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show and making it free for our listeners. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles, where we now have over 400 of them. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com deals. Please consider supporting those who support this show. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with Andreas Widmer, who has taught entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America's Bush School of Business since 2012. He is the author of the new book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship, Creating Enduring Value. He is also the author of the best-selling book, The Pope and the CEO. What we need to do is to focus on actually what our business does. We do, unfortunately, too little of that, and we only focus on the outcome of our businesses. So we focus on the profit, and then what do we do with the profit? What we're forgetting is the work itself and the feeling and the culture of meaning inside the company. That has a result that two-thirds of our workforce is disengaged. So six out of 10 employees in the United States can't wait to get home in the evening. They hate their jobs. Is that their fault? No, it's not their fault. Remember, we rise by lifting others. So share the show with those that you love and care about. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with somebody else who could use the advice that we gave today. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.